morning, everybody. Before we um, look at some scripture that I want us to, to find, um, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but um, if I did, I would ask you first, how many of you want to go to heaven? And assuming you raised your hand, then I would say, every one of you that raised your hands that you want to go to heaven, but you are fairly new here to our congregation and you've never filled out visitor's information at the information desk. Um, if you want to go to heaven, please stop by the information desk and um, fill out a card. Now, we don't uh, call you asking for money or whatever else, um, but it helps me remember names. It helps me to know um, I don't do too badly there, but I need some help. Uh, if I see a name written out, it helps me remember it better. So anyway, if you haven't done that, um, even if you've attended here a while, um, please do that if you would. <clears throat> I want to look today at the book of Jonah. There's four chapters in the book of Jonah. It's considered... They're, they're the major prophets in the Old Testament are Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Um, it's considered one of the minor prophets. I think Jonah, though, is just an incredible book as far as all that goes on there. The great number of themes, of lessons, of thoughts that we get from that little book. Um, so... If you'll bear with me, I want to read it, except most of the third chapter we won't read. So that will help us cut down a bit. But um, I want us, even though some may be familiar, there's maybe that some aren't. So um, if you can find either a Bible in the, the seat back uh, in front of you or your phone or whatever that you will then put on silent. Um, we'll start reading Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. By the way, better give you a little background here. This is written probably, we don't, nobody knows for sure, but we're looking at ballpark about 750 B.C., okay? Um, we don't know a thing about Jonah except that what is writ, uh, written here, son of um, Amittai or Amittai, we know nothing else about him. He does show up um, later in, uh, very briefly in 2 Kings, um, but we, he just comes on the scene um, and we don't, we know virtually nothing about him. The city that he, that God was sending him to was in its rising status as future capital of the great, cruel, powerful kingdom of Assyria, Nineveh. Nineveh, the ruins are still there to some degree, and the city of Mosul in Iraq is just across the river from where Nineveh was located, and so that's the environment, that's the area um, 
that's still there. And by the way, I don't know how long ago it was. It's not been more than a year or two um, that some group, you never keep track of which group's mad about what, blew up the, the called the Tower of Jonah that was a monument um, that's been there forever. Um, and so they blew that up, which fixed something, but I don't know what. Um, so anyway, that's the area, and that's about the time frame. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, which is today in Israel, Haifa. Found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid. Every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below into the hold of the ship and lain down and fall, fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, and then he prayed, asking God to save him, so forth. Verse 10 of 2, Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, <laughs> which we'll look at in a second. There's some humor in God. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth with the greatest to the least of them. 
When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may return from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would not bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it, or that, greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and he said, <clears throat> Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself, sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. <clears throat> when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals or cattle. Now, this to me, th this is an incredible book, and there's so many lessons that I, we can't look at today, but there are three, three, three things about God and his dealings with us that I want us to see here. And there are, what here, about six or seven references that I want us to look at under the first thing. We see God's power, immense, unlimited power of God. But we see it in both big and little events. First, if we just look at verse 4 of 1, Jonah's trying to run away, run away from the presence of the Lord, dumb as can be. Same thing Adam and Eve did. You know, well, we'll, we'll hide behind a tree. He won't know where we're at. Um, and Jonah knew, my goodness, he knew better than this. Um, but he's trying to, it says he go, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, by the way, he's, he wants to go to Tarshish. Um, nobody's dead sure, but the vast majority of people believe that this is 
a, was a city clear out on the western entrance to the Mediterranean Sea about 50 or 60 miles north of Gibraltar. So that's a long ways away. Um, I don't know what got into Jonah's head to think that the God he knew made heaven and earth wouldn't know where Spain was. If I go to Spain, you know, he won't find me. Anyway, so that's where he was headed. So God is his first, the language here is hurled. He threw a great wind on the sea. There was a great storm on the sea. Ship was about to be broken up. It's interesting to me that when you read even commentators on this, Christian Bible commentators, they're always, they, they are always including, now this could be a, a special, you know, hurricane season kind of a storm that happened. And those do happen certain times. They blow off the land out to sea so they couldn't get back to sea. And so this is probably called the same thing that Paul faced in his shipwreck, which was called the wind of Euroclidon. And blah, 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 blah. natural explanation. There wasn't a natural explanation. God did it. And listen, even the totally dear, darkened, pagan sailors had brains enough to know there was no natural explanation for this. Why? Because their first thing was, we better cast lots, draw straws, and find out who did something really bad. Because this is not natural. This is normal. God's Whoever, whichever God they envisioned, he's mad about something. And boy, somebody on the board of this ship did something really bad. They had better sense than a lot of commentators. Anyway, the Lord hurled this storm at them. And then after they have the conversation with Jonah, and Jonah knew, he said, the only thing that's going to stop this, you got to throw me overboard. And they hated to do it. They worked hard to try to row so they wouldn't have to. Then they prayed to this new God they just found out about, the Lord. Man, Lord, he's innocent. We, we, you know, don't get on to us for what we're about to do to him. Because we don't want to do it. But we have to. So they threw him over. And just as miraculous, the, the word here for the verse 15 for the storm stopped, it's, it's stilled. It's, a, it's the similar word Jesus that was used in the Gospels when it said Jesus in the storm on the lake of Galilee stood and said, peace, be still. And it says, immediately the wind and the waves ceased. This wasn't a gradual calming down. You know, I, I wasn't far from the ocean about half of my life hours drive and you could go over there several days after a big storm and the waves were still a lot of foam and stuff on the beach and the waves were still kind of high and the the fishing fleets were very careful before they went out this was that was every bit as much a testimony to these sailors that the minute Jonah hit the water it quit that's as miraculous as this starting it. And so it's interesting to me. It said they greatly feared the Lord 
and they offered a sacrifice and made vows. <laughs> um, they're from Spain, okay? They finished their trip. Of course, they got home empty because they had to throw all the cargo out that they were trading on. Think of the stories they had when they got home. They, they had a story to tell, but they also learned something. They met a, they encountered a new God that they'd never thought of. So from then on in this passage, or in this whole book, starting with verse 117, we have the same word used, same word used expressing God's power. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, this is another thing that a lot of people think, well, now, how could a, you know, what kind of a fish was it that could have swallowed him? Because we know that some whales have a narrower throat and they can't, wait a minute. God, is said, made it. And listen, here's some people say, well, that's just a myth. It couldn't have, you know what? Think about this. Jesus didn't think it was a myth. He specifically cited this. And he says, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights, so also me, the son of man, will be in the tomb. So if Jesus believed it, we probably should. But he appointed a fish appointed him to throw up and spit Jonah out on the shore. He appointed to, to get through the rest of those words in four, six, seven, and eight. The word appears every verse. God appointed, after he appointed a fish, appointed him to throw up, throw Jonah out on the, on the shore, then he appointed a plant. He appointed a worm. He appointed a scorching east wind. Now, here's what's interesting, to me at least, about that word. It's a really strong, formal word, and it has to do with a formal ceremonial accompanied by rituals Commissioning. I don't know if you know that, and, and maybe we still don't, where we don't any longer, but if you go south on 50 and you take Clark Ellen Road, and I can't, you go a long ways, out in the middle of nowhere, there, it, it makes perfect sense, is a Coast Guard station. Everybody know about, or anybody know about that? I, I don't know if it's still functioning. Had something to do with some of the signals for planes and whatever. But a number of years ago, um, we had a young couple that attended church here, and he was assigned out there. He was with Coast Guard, and he was assigned to that. It's just a building, brick building. Now there's a huge tower, and guy wires go forever. Um, but they were having a kind of changing of the guard. He was getting a promotion, and they were also getting a new commandant of the 400-square-foot building. <laughs> now, I really put that in my resume. Yeah, I, I run the Gillette, Wyoming Coast Guard. Um, 
But he wanted me to come to that, and I was supposed to pray. So I went out there. And here you've got this little building that, I mean, there's nothing there. But boy, there was more brass and braids on guys, and they didn't have a band. They played it over a, you know, a microphone or a whatever, PA sound system. And I prayed some, you know, pontifical prayer. Um, all of this to commission, officially install a new commandant. Okay? Now, if you can picture that kind of pomp and circumstance, that's what the Hebrew word means here. God, God commissioned a plant. He commissioned a fish. They had some kind of ceremony, I guess. Bands played, angels sang, officially installed this fish. That's the word it mean, uses. In, in the end, of course, they had an official installation for a worm. That's the word that's used. What I look at and see is not only the unmeasurable power of God, but how precise and detailed he is. He's not going to lose my address. He's not stumped for what to do in the tight spot I'm in. And he, he, knows, he knows where a worm's at that he's going to commission for a job he gives him. It's unbelievable. That's the, that's the powerful, detailed awareness of our God. Now, all that he did, all that he maneuvered, was not an end in itself. We have a display of God's power here and the ease in which he does it that is, we just stand in awe, we should, at how God can work and does. The second thing we see that I'm grateful for, this powerful God, and I'm, I, I mean this in the right sense, and he expresses this with Nineveh. Don't get on his bad side. A God who can appoint a worm to do this, or a storm, or a great fish, the wind, the waves, don't mess with him. But here's the comforting thing. Not only does God have this massive power, but he has pity. He has pity. He shows it, first of all, in putting up with Jonah. His mercy with Jonah. If you and I had the kind of power God expresses here, how long would we bear with somebody like Jonah who knew better, who had prophesied before, and who directly contradicted a command 
from God, knowing who he was, because he says, I'm, I serve the God of the Hebrews, the Lord who made heaven and earth. And notice, notice this, when he said that to the sailors, they, it says they became exceedingly frightened after he described their God to them, or to his God to them. Didn't seem to bother him. Sometimes people with more spiritual light are more callous toward God than poor dear souls who don't know anything. These pagans had never heard of God, probably. The Hebrew God, maybe. But they were coming to ports that were north. They might have heard a little bit about... But everybody, every country had hundreds of gods. But they were more reverent and rightly fearful of this God who made heaven and earth than one of his preachers who had gotten so used to truth and used to spiritual light and scripture and so forth that he hardened his heart towards it. And he's the one. And, and the interesting, the language here, it says, um, what have you done, basically? But the, a better translation is, not what have you done, Jonah, but these pagan sailors said to him, how could you do this? So these people who knew nothing but really had more reverence for God than Jonah did rebuked him and said, why? If you have the light you have, how could you do this? After he confessed to them that he was running away from God. God had pity on Jonah. Didn't snuff him out. Second, he had great pity on Nineveh because God's aim was, I want to send a preacher to them and I want them to repent. Now, what was Jonah's problem? What in the world kind of a preacher, a prophet, would say, I don't want to go do it because I'm afraid they might repent and get right with God and he'll forgive them. What in the world? Well, you have to know the history that Israel had been enduring decades and decades of cruelty from the Assyrians. They were coming north or they were coming southwest along the Palestinian coast and they were sacking cities of the Israelites and slaughtering them by the thousands. And so Jonah, the last thing Jonah wants to see is them get a break from God. His prayer was, smoke them. And now when he, he knows, if God's sending me to preach to them, God's, here's what God's aim is. He wants to soften their hearts, break down their resistance. He wants to bring them to their knees so that he can forgive them and spare them. He didn't want that. Now, I'm not up here. You have to know this. I'm not up here, you know, pointing at you. Probably point to myself more. In the tumult that's in our world today, whether it be internationally or in our own country. I got to look at myself. How much am I praying that people will, God will get to their hearts and they'll repent? 
you don't have to confess to me and I'm not going to confess to you. <laughs> what, what's, what do we normally think? Where are the thunderbolts? You know, where's the lightning? Where's the Old Testament just plague, kill them by the thousands? Get rid of them, sick of them. They're enemies of God. Well, listen, if they're enemies of God, and they are, they're really not enemies. We're not their enemies and vice versa. The Bible makes it clear. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemies can't be seen. It's spiritual. If they truly are fighting against God, this God, who can commission a worm, I bet God can take care of it by himself. He doesn't need me to help him. He doesn't need me to storm the streets. He doesn't need me to get furious and... Here's one thing, this is not off subject, but here's one thing. If I were God, <laughs> you know what? I probably wouldn't go after all the Democrats. The first thing I'd do is I would wipe out even the memory of social media. Okay? They wouldn't even remember they had such a thing. It is the greatest pooling of moronism that we've ever invented. That's all it is. It's the pooling of foolishness. Anyway, um, but God had pity on Nineveh. He shouldn't have pity on Nineveh. Doesn't he realize what they've done to us? I lost family to a band of Assyrians who ripped up our city, burned our wheat fields. Man, I don't want God to give them a break. That's not a very good heart. You remember in the New Testament, Jesus sent out the disciples and went to the villages to preach, and they all came back and reported. And John, in one place, John and James, who Jesus nicknamed Sons of Thunder, that gives us a hint of what they were like. And they gleefully, really, they, they didn't receive Jesus, some village. And they said, should we call down fire on it? Like Elijah did? Burn them up? Can we? Please? <laughs> Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. That speaks to my heart, to all of us, should. Um, God's not, God is not willing that any perish. Rather have them return and repent. Now let me jump ahead just a, a second. If we think that God never does anything and never does is always so extensive and extended in his pity that he never does anything. Just a few minor prophets over, you find Nahum. Nahum is about 150 years after Jonah and he's writing to the same city, Nineveh. And this time Nineveh didn't turn and God absolutely wiped them off the face of the map. Did it with the Babylonians. So that today, Nineveh is nothing but rubble. So, God does judge. But never as quickly as we wish. If he did, we'd be in trouble. We'd, we'd all be in trouble. If he, if he was as trigger happy as I am with me, I wouldn't be here. 
That's why Jonah was messed up here and why he was so furious that God was going to give Nineveh a break. But God had pity on them. He had pity on these sailors. He saved them and he gave them, he gave them some light. They learned about a new God. And of course he had pity on Jonah. He sent a, sent a fish to swallow him. Let me just highlight his pity a bit more towards Jonah. I want you to think about, first of all, Jonah, this is crazy. Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days before he prayed. Do you get that? What in the world? Why? I mean, the first the cannonball of hitting the ocean from being thrown off, I'd have been praying every prayer I could think of. No, he sinks, said the weeds went around my head. Fish walls him, and he's in there three days before he decided, well, I guess I'll pray. That gives us some insight into what kind of a hard heart he had and how much mercy God had on him. But the third thing we see, God's great power and his great pity, his purpose. One, enlighten those who don't even know about God. Now, it's, there's evidence that Nineveh, the Assyrians, had some sense, and I'm sure with their interactions, good and bad, with Israel, they had some knowledge. They had better knowledge about the Lord of the Hebrews than the sailors from Spain had. But he enlightened them. Now, scared them to death. <laughs> but he, they were introduced in a phenomenal way to the God who made heaven and earth and their allegiance to their own little gods that they were all exhorting each other to pray to, we know ebbed away. They offered sacrifice and made vows. Had to have been. I'm certain we're, we're going to worship you from now on. So enlightened those who don't have light. That's God's purpose in all of this. His end purpose, enlighten those who have no light. Two, to exhort to repentance those who need to repent. Nineveh. He was merciful to them. But his mercy was in the form of saying, you better turn from that which is infuriating to me or you're going to bear the brunt of my judgment. But he gave them space to repent. And in their case, they did. In however many days, they turned to God. Now, obviously, we know that they fell away in succeeding generations. So that 150 years after this great revival that they had, God obliterated them. And the picture in Nahum of the listing of what they were like is a terrible picture. I don't suppose it was a whole lot worse than this in Jonah's day, but in Jonah's day they repented. So God had mercy. That's his aim. Bring them to repentance so they can spare them. And here's the final purpose 
that I think he also always has for what he may allow us to go through, what he shows us, it's to reveal our hearts to us as individuals. Yes, he called on an entire capital of a nation to repent, and they did. So while he's working on a city that had 120,000 infants in it alone, so we have no idea of the population, massive population, he worked on them as a massive group of people to repent. Yet he also never lost track. I got to show one guy, Jonah, what's in his heart. Now, if we were to take New Testament language and theology and apply it to the Old Testament prophet Jonah, Jonah was like Paul said to the Corinthians. You're, you're in Christ, you're right with God, but you're still carnal. Or as James said, you're believers, but you're double-minded. Jonah was a carnal preacher because he, he wanted God's will as long as God's will lined up with what he wanted. But when God acted outside of Jonah's drawn box, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not having anything to do with that. I'm not going to cooperate with it. And he was just a spoiled brat, kind of, what he acted like. And we learn that, I bet he loved preaching when he went there. Because it was damnation. There was, here's the guy who's preaching. Repent, but boy, I sure hope you don't. And even though God said, I'm going to forgive him, he still wouldn't take it because he goes up on the hill and makes himself a little booth so he can watch what's going to happen. God already told him what was not going to happen to the city. He said, I'm not going to do anything to them. They've repented. I've forgiven them. We're, we're happy. Not Jonah. I hope he changes, I hope he changes his mind. I'm going to sit up here and see you when he does. I want to see this. Finally, that last whole section of chapter 4 where he appoints a plant, he appoints a worm, he appoints a wind, was all, not for Nineveh, not for a huge mass of people, one man. So he'd see his heart. We know, as far as we know, Jonah wrote this. There's too much here that only Jonah could have known. So I'm certain Jonah wrote it. And I believe that explains the abrupt unfinished end to this book. God set the whole thing up, grew a plant, and the plant he refers to has leaves about the size of at least a foot in a diameter, huge leaves, very fast growing. God apparently put, well, miracle grow on it, and it grew up in one day and covered him. Man, he's happy. Man, appreciate it, Lord. Notice there, he's thankful because God did what Jonah wanted. I tell you, if God would only stay in line, if he would only do what we want him to do, I wish he could catch on to that. He'd be fine. We'd be fine. Except what Jonah was thanking God for, God held this, had a band play, and he anointed and appointed and installed a grub worm. <laughs> he says, 
that. Bore clear through it. Kill it. The next day, Jonah's mad as can be because that plant withers. And he's mad. Second time, God, are you, are you, is it reasonable for you to be mad? All of that display of God's power in the plant and the worm and the wind was so he could then give the punchline, really, to the whole book. Jonah, you had compassion on a plant that you've only known for 24 hours. You had nothing to do with bringing it here, nothing to do with it going away. You had compassion on that. Shouldn't I have compassion on Nineveh, who has 120,000 infants? Plus, notice this. I, I, I got to watch my time. And many cattle, livestock. God even has compassion on the livestock. You know that? You might think, well, yeah. And I'm not working for PETA, okay? Um, but, you know, the Bible says a righteous man regards the life of his animal, his plow horse, his ox. A righteous man regards his life. So even, you know, cows lower their heads, just stare at you through the fence, run their tongue up into their nose. You know? He has compassion on even them, the goats and the sheep. I have compassion on them. And the book ends. Because I believe Jonah saw his heart. God engineered all that to show him what am I thinking? What's wrong with the lack of love in my heart? That message, God not only wrote it down here, but not just for Jonah. He wrote it down for me. And he wrote it down for every one of us that we, we, have, to, we have to think like God. And when we sense that we're not, and we're being drawn away from the way God thinks, we have to we can't be like Jonah, reluctant. Get back quickly. Say, Lord, that's not the way you think. This is how you operate. Um, so, in this current day, I think it's good for us to remember God's massive power. Listen, he isn't stumped for what to do. He isn't running. He isn't thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. He, listen, if he can commission a worm... He knows where Biden lives. <laughs> he knows. He knows. He knows what's going on. And here's what we have to remember. As long as he chooses to do what we think is nothing, which is never the case, but we don't see his hand, we don't think he's doing anything to straighten everything up or do what we think ought to be done, I just have to say, Lord, you're smarter than I am. You're greater than I am. You're better than I am. You're perfect. You know what you're doing. I'm going to leave you alone. I'm just going to trust in you. And I'm going to continue to believe you know my case. You know where I am. You are able to defend your own cause better than I can. I'll love you, trust you, serve you on a day-by-day -day basis. And be a light for what you are like as best I can. That's our... That's the message, I think, from this great little book. 
So I want to commit that to you today just to um, maybe go read it too. But remember, our God is not ruffled. He isn't chewing his fingernails. He's not worried. We can rest in him. Now, before we go, I recognize that it is right at time to quit. But I want us to um, gather here just in a moment. You can either stay seated in your chairs. If you wish, you can come and kneel here at the front or stand. Come and just gather at the front, whatever you want to do. But uh, Dan uh, Knust is in his at least fourth week of COVID pneumonia. He is recovering. He, um, um, I reminded him two days ago that I can fire him. He's at my total mercy. And I said, I do not want to see your face for three more weeks, okay? Because he's chomping at the bit and he needs to be careful. Um, he is recovering. He's at home. He's being weaned off of uh, oxygen and able to keep his numbers up good, pretty well. And so, uh, but very slow. But we want to pray for him. Things kick off with the youth in two weeks. And, of course, he wants to be here, but he can't. That's just, thus saith me. Uh, but he's got to be careful. Um, more serious is Jeff Dale. Those of you that... Um, if you don't know Jeff, he always sits right there, and he's 6'8", so I know you've seen him. He is in Billings, and he is um, on a ventilator with severe COVID pneumonia. Um, he's been there since Monday, um, and he is not getting worse. There is, I, I don't know the term, um, marginal um, uh, improvement, but it is in the right direction. But uh, they, need, they need serious prayer from us, not only on our own, but there is something about gathering together. The Old Testament's full of it. Proclaim a fast and come to the temple. Let's pray. So um, we're all here in the same room. You don't have to come to the front if you don't want to, that's fine. Uh, if you wish to, let's um, uh, take a minute to gather if you want, those of you that want to, and then we will pray. I'll lead us in prayer, but I don't want you to listen to me. Don't listen to what I'm praying. You pray, because we really need to present to God our petition. So if you would, those of you that want to gather here in the front would do that um, quickly, then we will we'll have prayer and be dismissed. <clears throat> Father in heaven, I thank you that we we know who we are approaching. You are the same God who engineered all this in the book of Jonah.
You're the same God who spoke the world into being, spoke the space and the stars into being. You're the same God who raised your son Jesus from the dead, providing us redemption. So Lord, we know about your power. We know about your great pity for us, mercy on us. And you said in the Psalms, I know your frame. I remember that you're dust. You know, Lord, our anxieties, our griefs, our sorrows. You, Jesus, were a man acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows. You understand our anxiety, our worries, our apprehension. You understand it all. So, Lord, it's with great confidence that we come to you knowing that you hear us. You know we're here. And your ear is open, you said, unto our prayer. We bring to you today, Lord, both Dan Knust and Jeff Dale. And Lord, we acknowledge you freely. Though you work through doctors, through medications, through medical equipment, all of which we believe we thank you for because we believe you enabled it to be discovered or invented. But ultimately, Lord, we don't give credit to these things or these measures because you alone are the one who holds our breath in your hand. And so, Lord, it's to you we rightly turn in a time like this. I pray for your healing power, however you should choose to exhibit it. Most of the time, you work through normal means. We don't dictate to you anything as to how you do what we are asking you to do. But Lord, we're praying that you would preserve lives, give recovery, strength, and restore them, I pray, not only to our presence and their ministry, their work, their lives, their families. But Lord, we just pray that through it all, your name would be honored and that your name would be glorified. So we lift all of our prayers together to you. You're here. You said we're just two or three gathered together. I'll be there. You're here. You, you know our prayer. We commit it unto you as unto a faithful and all-wise creator. It's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Keep these matters in prayer. You are dismissed.